There's a place some of us go each fall. A place where the ring of a bell filters through the covers and hurried shouts of bird up bring everybody to attention. A place where the playful puppies around our house are transformed here to driven bird finders. And where there is confidence in the slow pace of the silver-muzzled old veterans. Where our friends tell the same old stories each year, and none of us seem to mind. Where great shots are forgotten, and epic misses never fade. Where an old gun will have a story to tell, if only it could speak to us. Where all the good seats are claimed by the dogs. If you have a camp, you know these things all too well. If you don't, well, you're always welcome here. So pull up a chair, tell us about your favorite gunner dog, and we'll admire the birds together and talk the night away by the fire. Welcome to Bird Camp. Before we start the podcast, of course, we're going to do a few things like always, and that is thank the Patreons. And again, uh, thank you, Nathan, for joining the Patreon group and for uh, donating and contributing to this podcast. And again, I do appreciate it, that gift. I just actually, as I'm recording this, I have them in my hands as of a few hours ago, so that gift will be going out. I just need to get people's addresses and uh, a little thank you from Bird Camp. On top of that, uh, always contact us at mi.birdcamp at gmail.com. Of course, if you have a hunting hero you would like to shine the spotlight on, or uh, perhaps a quandary about your camp, or some sort of other uh, dilemma, send it to us, and we can see what we can do about solving it, or at least putting a little bit of tongue-in-cheek humor with it as well. Uh, This episode has a few audio glitches. I don't know exactly how that happened but I had to cut off the last 20 minutes or so, so what I'm going to do here is it was with Fritz Heller. The last question was, what does ethical bird hunting look like? That's the dang on telemarketers. Anyway. And they're gone. Now, on top of that, the question for Fritz was, what does ethical bird hunting or grouse hunting look like? And I'll sum it up for him. He was more eloquent than me. First of all, it is... If it's legal, I'm not going to judge on you. You do what you do. Um, he goes into the weeds as he says it as well, and that is, say a guy is more effective than you, just because he shoots more doesn't mean he's taking away your enjoyment from the sport. You just need to get out there and hunt and enjoy your sport. And uh, whether it's one, two birds, five birds a season, or a guy who can shoot 50, uh, we're all in this together. Keep it legal. Don't... He doesn't gun his covers too often. That's one of those things where he recognizes that there are no such things as your own solitary little place on public land. And, uh, you know, other guys are going to be in here, so we keep our pressure to a certain level. And that's kind of what he said. There was a bit more to it, but those were the highlights, and that's kind of what I took away. And so with that, I believe I've done most of my bookkeeping here at the beginning. Patreon, contact us, of course, at mi.birdcamp.com at gmail.com and uh, again I apologize for having to edit this you will hear a couple of hiccups in there and uh, hopefully that doesn't happen again so on to the episode welcome to the bird camp podcast this is your host Joe Schwenke 
I am here today with a guest, Fritz Heller. Welcome, Fritz. Thanks, Joe, for having me. We've been trying to put this together here for a couple months, and uh, finally worked out. Yep, yep. We're we're always busy. That's the that's the thing. But uh, now that I have you on the line, of course, we we were talking earlier about our kids and being busy with them, and uh, I thought I would start with probably some great news here. And can you run us through what happened when your son got his first bird this year? Yeah, I sure can. You know. Uh, both my kids play hockey and, and that kind of monopolizes your life from uh, September to the end of April for the most part with a couple breaks in there. But so he doesn't get to go as much as he'd like, but we had a rare Sunday afternoon and we went out and uh, he was all gangbusters to go. And we started moving some birds and he missed a few had a few where he's just, you know, not quite used to, all right, you got to go, you, you know, like there's your window, miss the window to even pull the trigger. But uh, that magic, uh, that magic hour, and I call the magic hour, the, not the last hour before dark, but the hour prior to that. And uh, we were coming through a spot and uh dog was birdie and kind of came up a hillside and it worked out pretty well where uh she pushed that bird off the hillside as kind of a high quartering away shot and up he pulled and bang and out of it out of the sky it fell a great big drummer and that was his first official bird uh his first official grouse on the wing he's killed plenty of ducks on the wing but Kind of a rule in our house is you get one off the limb, you get one off the water, and after that, it's uh, you got to get a little more sporting. <laughs> so he was pretty fired up. It was it was pretty great experience. I'm glad we had those three hours, and mm-hmm. you know we got out together a few more times with my kids being so busy on weekends. You know, outside of the kind of a, a three or four three weekends of fall that I just schedule off. Um, I, I typically don't get to hunt many full weekends. I mean, I normally, I get an afternoon here, a full day there, but most of my hunting gets done during the week, which if you live up North is easier than if you live downstate. So mm-hmm. that's the story on that. I was pretty thrilled to have it done over my old dog too. And yeah, he was pretty fired up. The tail fan is dried and salted and mounted in his room with picture and, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's now two of those stories I've gotten to hear this year and uh and that's great. I'm hoping to have and may maybe the kids this year, some of my boys will will get after it. They've done the flying ducks and now it's yeah. it's time for the next step in the grouse woods. I'm but, just excited that you know, he's big enough now that I'm not uh I'm not having to get a gun refitted every every early, early every summer or late spring that you know he kind of he, he can wear adult stuff and he can wear you know same size boots mm-hmm. I wear and <clears throat> so that's nice. Yeah, that's that's one of those. That's the best part probably of the of what I get to do here now is I get to hear hopefully I hear more stories like this. Um, just. It it's the best part of hunting in a way really is is getting that next generation 
not just interested, but having them finally get it to the point where you get one right. And, uh, yeah, he he really seems to enjoy hunting and shooting. Mm-hmm. He shoots sporting clays all summer with us a little bit more than he does fishing, where when I was that age, it was kind of the opposite, where, you know, but the, the bird hunting opportunities weren't as great back then, or, or where we where I grew up, but the um, fishing opportunities, you know, you can find any farm pond or neighborhood pond or, or wherever to get after it, and he seems to have a, a bigger interest and passion in, in, in hunting than, than he does fishing, but maybe that fishing bug will grow in him, too. <laughs> It, it will. There's, who knows? I mean, mine, one picked fishing, one picked maybe more, more hunting, but uh, that's, I mean, I'll follow whatever they want to do in a way with that. That's, that's going to be fun. It just costs me money. That's all it is. Yeah. is money. Right. Everything <laughs> in life costs money. Right. I'm going to be back in a fishing boat this year because of, that's, that's one of his choices, but. Uh, Perfect. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, kind of going along with that, then, I'm going to skip into question number two. I'll go back to question one. Um, we fielded some questions from, from people that listen here, and some of them came in from Facebook, and another one of them came in, I think, from a message. But uh, Lisa Ann wrote out a question for us here, and that's the best advice for a brand-new grouse hunter. To find a mentor, number one, that's willing to show you the ropes, and number two is to simply wear out boot leather. Uh, you can't. You can look at all the maps you want, and you can go to all the gem sites you want, but there's kind of a wonderful science to uh, grouse hunting, and it requires blood, sweat, and tears, and that's what I think makes it so special and so unique compared to, you know, say, other other styles of upland hunting where identifying habitat and locating birds might be a little bit easier, at least in my experience. Uh, you know, the great science of grouse hunting is why are they in one spot and you drive a mile down the road and the spot looks exactly the same and they're not in that spot. Something's obviously a little bit different. And the, the only way to really get good at it is just to walk and walk and walk and to walk through Walk through cover and learn what doesn't work. Walk through cover, you know, mm-hmm. you got to go. And that, my best advice is, you know, a mentor will shorten that learning curve. Don't go back to that mentor's covers. Be very respectful, but learn and pay attention and ask as many questions as you can. I had a lot of mentors that I didn't necessarily even hunt with that were just willing to answer the phone and, and answer, you know, answer my questions and, but more than anything, I just went hunting as much as I could. And I was in the woods at some years, you know, 140 days a year between hunting season, scouting, and training, whatever you want to call it. But it's simply to go, go, go. And if one spot's not working, if one type of cover's not working, try something different. Until you find where they're at that time of the year for the county you're in, and what they're patterned on. Yep. That's my advice. A mentor number one, number two, walk, 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 walk. Embrace the suck. I heard that from somebody else about new grouse hunters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I think I listened to that episode, Old Curmudgeon in the UP. Right. Who <laughs> <laughs> someday I'll get to meet in person. That's that's yeah, on my list. He's a great guy. We do a little <laughs> we do a little business together. Oh, good. Good. So, um, this one kind of came up here as well. This one's a. Uh, this might be a nuanced question depending on how you interpret it. And uh, Chris Tyndall wrote this one out for us. After a grouse flush, either with a no-shot or a clean miss, what determines if you pursue for a reflush or continue in your original direction? Personal ethics. Um, you know, one of my mentors told me one time, kill the ones you can kill and don't worry about the rest. And I personally rarely ever follow a bird unless it is headed in the direction that kind of my game plan for that cover is headed. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of success on reflush birds, especially in the northern lower. Maybe a little bit more the further north and west you go. But for the most part, I, I just don't, I don't have a lot of success. Typically the birds are air washed. The dogs struggle. They get jumpier on every every reflux, in my experience. So I, I just, you know, I don't I don't follow birds. I guess I don't have a problem with people that do. I just honestly don't find it as effective. You know, I, I one of the reasons I genuinely love steelhead fishing is, for the most part, I try and target them in places where. That fish that I that I caught's never been caught before, and I don't care to catch one that somebody else has already caught. So if that bird eludes me or gets away, that bird eluded me and got away. Good, mm-hmm. You know, if they didn't, if some of them, it'd be it'd get pretty boring if you killed every one that flushed. <laughs> right. Yep. All right. So, so yeah. So then it's that's kind of the way you're dissecting a cover then as well, right? You're. You're going right. in there saying the majority of the birds I'm going to encounter are going to be down this line, and I when I get to the end of my line, I'll turn. Yeah, I'm looking for the microhabitat within the macro environment in every cover to try and maximize the amount of, of contacts that I can get. Yep. You might you might have an 80-acre piece. I'm a firm believer if there's 10 birds in it that eight of them live in 20 acres of that 80, mm-hmm. and they might live in five. Right. So, and to go back to the first question, the only way you figure that out is to start walking, right, and paying yep. real close attention to where they're at, what they're doing, why why they're using that specific area of a cover. Mm-hmm. Yep, and we've noticed that as well because with our GPS, when we get a dog that points a bird, it's easy to click that that mark button. And then a year or two later, you go back through there again. You know it's a good cover. The dog's on point, and you go, "Oh, I already have a mark here, and it's within right. fifty yards, you know, from from even years ago." But right, uh, yeah, that the the attention to detail would really help yeah. out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which I'm still struggling with. I can get about halfway through October before I quit journaling. And it's. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I, I have, I, I came upon this thought five, six, seven years ago. You know, when I was maybe almost twenty years into my grouse hunting career, like serious grouse hunting, and 
I think there's five different seasons within each grouse season. I think there's early season where everything's very green. It's very, you know, thick. The birds can literally be anywhere. Um, sometimes you either find a ton or you find very few. The next, the, you know, season two would be the shuffle, right? So that's mm-hmm. when those broods start to break up, and there's very specific areas you can target when they start to break up, and they start to, you know, spread out, get out of the family groups, start looking for new habitat, new territories. There's very specific pattern that you can target when that's going on. And then you have what I call leaf drop, which the birds can almost seem like when the leaves are coming down that week in early to mid-October, depending on where you're at. But that week that those leaves are blowing out of the trees and you go from, you know, colored leaves to the trees with a half of them still on, they can just flat out disappear at that time. And that can be a very frustrating time. I find the birds get very jumpy during that. They're losing their security. Um, they get jumpy. It seems to correlate with a time where we get, you know, a little bit of Indian summer and some wind there for, you know, three, four, five days a week. Mm-hmm. And, then you, and then you get, you know, post-leaf drop. Uh, into, you know, what we call bare November, where you have bare woods, which is the most glorious time of the year, in my opinion. For new grouse hunters, it's probably the most frustrating time of the year because they haven't totally figured out uh, the stem density game at that point. And the birds aren't where you found them, you know, in September. They aren't necessarily where you found them uh, you know, during the shuffle or, or when the leaves are falling and, mm-hmm. and but bare November is the greatest time of the year. And, and bare November could start as early as the 20th of October, you know, depending on where you are, or if you're in the far North or West, you know, it could be the, the 10th or 15th of October, depending on the weather and just the state of how many leaves are still on the trees or not on the trees. And then you have, then you have late season, which I refer to late season as any time you kind of have snow. Hmm. So I, there, I, I've got different spots and different patterns for all five of those seasons within a grouse season. Right. And it's part of this then is, is with that new hunter. We'll go back to them a few times. That's don't get discouraged halfway through right. October and decide that you're going to bow hunt instead, you know, there's, there's bigger payouts later on as, as those birds are moving and there's a lot more you can do. I mean, you can see. Yeah. If you love bow hunting, it's pretty easy to get in your stand in the morning and bow hunt till 1030 or 11 and then go have breakfast and then hunt the best five or six hours of the day, which is, you know, in, you know, the last mm-hmm. four hours of daylight. Yep. I mean, there's there's times of the day during those seasons too where they're just impossible to find. I mean, they've either already fed in the morning or they're loafing, and a lot of it's weather dependent, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, I you know the later in the season, the less early I start hunting. 
Right. That's that's almost kind of what a normal person would do too. If it's cold, miserable, and kind of dim, there's no point in me really getting out any earlier right. than they are, you know. Which is it's an odd parallel, but a lot of wild game is is that way, right? It right. gets cold, it gets miserable. I want to stay warm as much as they do, and you can kind of kind of base what they do on those situations. Correct. Yep. And always check under every last pine tree. That's e- <laughs> that's easy advice for the new grouse hunter. If you see a pine tree, go walk underneath it. Right. Better yet, get a dog that identifies pine trees and runs to them. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that was one of those easy tricks I learned right away was it always seems that one of them's under these. Okay. Yeah. I know where I'm walking first. Right. Or, uh, or at least I'm going to get ready. You go walk under there where there's no shot. I'll be yeah. I'll be out here in the open. You know, if you had flushing dogs, you wouldn't have to worry about that. I have a short hair. <laughs> no, I know. Sorry. Forgot. <laughs> the older he gets, I think the the more he points, and it's well, it's been frustrating sometimes too. I used to be able to tell him to go in and flush, and now finally he looks at me like you you don't let me do that. Come on, I need you right now. But uh, we're uh, we're an evenly split household. We have a spaniel and a Labrador to even out the two pointing dogs. Is your spaniel new? Um, yeah, yeah. In the last, uh, I think she's about a year and a half old. My well, uh, congrats, congratulations. <laughs> thanks. I've, it's a nerve wracking kind of gunning, but it's exciting. I've, yeah, it doesn't have to be nerve wracking. <laughs> It is for me because I've gotten really, really accustomed to leisurely getting ready for a bird. And uh, the Labrador is kind of taking the edge off with, okay, just you can be ready and still kind of relax. And I'm still getting used to it again. But uh, she's going to get a bit more intro to gunfire this spring. And uh, by by next fall, she'll be a gunning dog. Perfect. And uh, that's the one my son picked. My my youngest son Eli, and uh, she is a furry little hurricane. I I believe it. <laughs> but uh, very personable. Their spaniels are a great dog. But uh, in fact, somebody mentioned on here earlier that I need to mention ask you about the catter spaniel. The catter spaniel, the dog that went. I I've never had a dog run away from me. And. Uh, I came home, I, I normally go home at lunch, make my phone calls, let the girls out. I, we refer to our pack of dogs as the girls. And, uh, you know, currently we've got, I've got an 11-year-old lab, a six-year-old, a 7-year-old American Cocker Spaniel, six-year-old lab, and a two-year-old lab. And so we refer to our pack as the girls. But I go home and let them out. We've got underground fence at our house. And I just let them out, and then I go inside to do whatever and come back out, and there's three labs and no uh, no American Cocker Spaniel. She was gone for seven hours. And the subdivision I live in, if you want to call it a subdivision, everybody's got, you know, six to ten acres, and then there's a pretty big section of uh, private forest out behind us. 
and a big power line right away. And my brother and I and wife and kids, we searched and searched and searched. And it's kind of landlocked on an island by a big swamp. And I, I, I still to this day have no idea where she was. That's the longest I've ever been without a dog. And she just finally showed back up at, at home. But um, she's got a mind of her own. I, I, uh, she's out of uh, – there's three, uh, three lines of working American cockers left in the country, I discovered. And we babysat uh, Justin McGrail's cocker spaniel for about five months when he was on one of his bird hunting sojourns. Maybe it was three months. I don't know. But that dog was a lot ago in the house and in the bathtub with my kids. Yep. And uh, my wife said no to that. And then she wanted a 100% full-time indoor dog. And my thoughts were, well, I'm not going to have a dog that doesn't hunt. So I got her this American Cocker. And uh, she was, uh, you can't train them like a lab. They don't take repetition. They learn environmentally. They don't learn Mm -hmm. through drills. I had to completely rethink how I was doing. Stephen Roddick gave me a lot of advice. Uh, the breeder gave me a lot of advice. And if I had to do it again, I would do all the socialization. I would do everything the same other than I would just let her grow up to be 12, 13 months old before I started any kind of real formal stuff. She's a hunting fool. She's got a lot of energy. She's got her limits. She's a tool, not necessarily a toolbox like my Labradors. Yep. Um, she swims. She'll do water retrieves. Uh, you know, she's just she's a she's a very birdie, very nice little dog who's extremely frustrating if you've owned a line, a line of Labradors. <laughs> now that she's seven years old, I, I mean, there's there were stretches last year she was like my top producing dog. I mean, she's just, she's got a wicked nose on her. She does very nice on cripples. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's retrieved everything. You know, she's never retrieved a duck because I just don't need her in that situation. But, um, you know, she swam across the r- flooded river a couple years ago and retrieved a bird my brother shot while his lab was on the way to it. And, uh, <laughs> y- you know, so she she's a lot of fun. Would I own another one? don't know i'd like to think i would um you know my experience with the english cockers is they're very very dynamic there seem to be ones that have an off switch and ones that have no off switch where i'm I'm, of the six labradors i've owned i think six i don't know maybe seven i'd have to count again but all but one has had a pretty good off switch and so, you know, by two years old, so to speak. Mm-hmm. This one's got a nice off switch. Um, also, she's a little more vocal than I would like, uh, you know. But there, she's interesting. I mean, there, she her mind is always thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. We ended up on the – ours is a Springer. It's on the small side, so it's about the size of Stevens Cockers. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start to th- and we made the mistake of starting to think okay she's full grown but right. you can't get you can't get comfortable yet because she's still at that point you know a year old and you still got this just this energetic puppy on your hands but uh you know mentally uh 
for me, yeah. a year-old Cocker Spaniel was the equivalent of about a five-month-old Labrador. Yeah, I could see that a little bit. Yeah, and, and so, she's still even at, I think, closer to now a year and a half. She's still awful, awful boisterous. But uh, yeah. she does calm down. She comes to to, to front-facing here and hup real well. And uh, Stephen and Mike have been doing a lot of work with Eli, and so he has his place boards and the whistle and everything else. Yeah. And it's every almost every other day he's out there with, with her for a few minutes, 15 minutes here and there. And uh, she's coming along nicely. I was able to get him out, and he and Shannon went out on a couple of scratch roosters not that long ago and just with a starter pistol and she did well or it might have been a cap gun we still got one of them little dollar store cap guns yeah and uh performed great so i'm hoping for for more fun in the future and it's it is a totally new experience to what i'm used to but uh, i just i hate the coat on this dog but i i you know i i've uh i've i've given up on my clipping skills and she goes to the groomer you know, three times a year, and, and then, you know, come August 10th, she gets a full shave down. <laughs> so by the time September 15th rolls around, she's got just enough coat. Yep. <laughs> I have a pair of electrician shears here for her and for the setter, and I get the burrs out. And by the end yeah. of October or so on the setter, anything that catches burrs regularly is trimmed down pretty short. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you uh, you mentioned it earlier, so we're going to switch gears a little bit. But uh, I have on here, this is a question of mine because I know you guys shoot, and that is shooting practice. How much is enough, and how do I practice? Well, I think you got to go back. So, you know, my first couple years grouse hunting, I, I thought birds were unkillable. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, and so I think the number one thing – to becoming a good grouse shot, and, and I'm going to go through the whole process here, is seeing enough flushes where they start to slow down. And what what's that number? Is it 500? I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, but the biggest mistake when I take new grouse hunters grouse hunting is they shoot too fast. Mm-hmm. They're not getting away. And I, it was probably a mistake I made when I was younger and, and just learning. But... They're not getting away. And so number two is a proper gun fit. I, I, uh, I play a little bit of golf, and if I go to the golf course with 115-mile-an-hour swing speed, my wife's clubs aren't going to work real good for me. Uh, the clubs my 14-year-old son plays aren't going to work real good for me. you got to have a properly fit gun, especially in the environment that we shoot in. And if you think your gun budget's $3,000 or whatever it is, if you're going to buy yourself a nice gun, save 500 of it and buy a $2,500 gun that will work just as good and get a gun fitting. Mm-hmm. And then save $500 to have that gun fit to you, except there's these great auto loaders now with shim kits <laughs> yep. that you can dial them in really, really well. So if you don't have a properly fitted gun that is that is that you can 
mount to your face and shoot with a, without bringing your face down, you're going to struggle. Now, a lot of people can adjust to different guns, but when I got a gun fitting, my success rate increased dramatically. Mm-hmm. I shoot, um, and I think practice is vital. You can't go play golf and, and be a good golfer if you're not going to practice. There's exceptions to every rule, right? But those are one or two percenters, and I'm not one of those. <laughs> right. I, I need to groove a swing. So there's also proper form, and there's I, I don't buy into and and a little bit in my athletic and my coaching. You can call it muscle memory if you want, but it's hard to hard to build muscle memory, repetition and consistency. When I miss, I'm pretty confident why I missed. It's because it was a bad gun mount. And you're not going to make every gun mount great, and you're not going to make every golf swing perfect. So a properly fit gun, then proper eyewear. If you think you're going to walk into the woods with their eyeglasses on that are going to fog up and where you're looking at the frame when you're mounting a gun, you're crazy. You need to get good shooting glasses. You need to experiment with different lens colors. You need to find what works for you. There's a reason the best sporting clay shooters and skeet shooters in the world wear the eye protection and the glasses and the tint in those lenses that they wear mm-hmm. because they're there. You look at all those good shooters and that, that top line of their glasses is up up above their eyebrows. Why? We're shooting at rising birds. Your eyes are going up. So when I see people on the internet that tell me they're a professional shooting instructor, instructor, and they're on a sporting place course in July that's dark, and they're wearing bronze-wrapped sunglasses that they bought at the sporting goods store, I don't have a lot of trust in them. Mm-hmm. You're, 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 you might think you know what you're doing, but you don't, in my opinion. And maybe they're certified shooting instructor, maybe they're not, but some aspect there doesn't add up to me. So shooting glasses. How much do you shoot? I think it's as important as, as, that you shoot as, targets or targets. Any target is better than a no target. I like Hunter's Clays courses. I like skeet, especially when it's just you and a buddy on the skeet range and you can kind of set up scenarios. Mm-hmm. I shoot probably 2,500 targets a season. Um, That's about what I used to shoot. And it makes a huge difference. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, my scores at the end of the summer are a lot more dra- are drastically more consistent than my scores. Yeah. At the start of the season, why? I've been practicing. Mm-hmm. I I start out shooting a heavier gun early in the year, and then as I build confidence, and I think confidence is as important as anything, that's why I shoot Hunter Clay's courses, and it's fun to go to a tricked-up, long sporting clays course. I shoot heavier guns, and all my guns are kind of fit the same. 
Uh, my duck guns, uh, you know, got a little few different adjustments in my bird gun. You know, my duck gun shoots a 50-50 pattern, high-low. My bird gun shoots 65% high, you know, 35% yep. low. Um, but then as I get later and later towards the beginning of the season, I start shooting my bird guns. Mm-hmm. But if a new beginner or, or, or even, you know, I, I think, you know, 50 to 100 targets a week for eight weeks will greatly benefit you. And, it, and it's not cheap. I mean, it's, it's as expensive as playing golf. You know, absolutely, it is. <laughs> I mean, and you start you start taking your kid along, and your forty dollar, you know, day of a hundred targets just turned into eighty bucks. Yep. But I'm driving an expensive truck and feeding expensive dog food, and, and I will tell you personally, for me, being a busy guy with a, a, a growing company and active kids, that there is no better stress relief on earth than around a sporting place. Mm-hmm. For me. So any target is a good target. If you're going to get picky, hunter's clays, skeet, yep. better than better than trap, in my opinion. Yep. Yep, I like, I like a nice combination that hunter's clays is good. I like to be able to translate my skeet skills over into the hunter's clays. Um, the added variety of the clays is nice, but the and, fundamentals and- of seeing every possible angle... Right. On the skeet field in under 15 minutes, you know, you and a buddy can run through a 25-shot round pretty quickly. Right. You know? And the other advice I always thought of is if you want to really improve, let's start keeping score. The, the yeah, second, we, keep, we keep score. The second you start making prop bets with your buddy or even if it's just bragging rights, when you start keeping score, you start to think more about what you're doing on the field and how to improve. And uh, my biggest improvements came when I started shooting Winter League. Yeah. Next thing you know, I realized I'm getting my butt kicked by a guy who's shooting a antique pump. And, okay, now it's time I need to start learning my game. The, the, the other advice is shoot gun down. Yep. Shoot proper form. YouTube will teach you just about anything, but really study it because, and and then the mistake I see is, you know, move, mount, bang is what you want, but the, the move doesn't, don't, don't yell, pull and mount the gun. Now you've mounted and you're moving and bang. Mm-hmm. Do not mount your gun till you see the target. So there's a lot of clays courses and hunters courses where, you know, the birds come in through a through a path don't don't mount until you see that bird because grouse hunting you have to instinctually the first cue is always you hear the flush so you're already so you hear the flush you're starting to come into ready and you're starting to move to find it well momentum's already got you started Mm -hmm. you know the guns off of uh, the, the top of the barrels are about at your you know up to your nose right the beads just below your nose and then your move mount and really, most of the time, when that gun hits your cheek, you're pulling the trigger. Yeah. And so, practice the way you're going to hunt. Yep. Yeah, there's the, the gun mount, and it comes back to that. I get, I, I get occasionally, I get a compliment on, on you, you seem so fast. 
it's it's just a smoothness. There's really no speed involved there. In fact, I'm always trying to slow down, just because. Yeah, shoot too early, you miss. Right. And that right. nice that nice practiced muscle memory gun mount. You know, you hear the machine before you ever see the bird, right? Especially on clays, right. the the RGS right. shoot here in July will be that way. I'll hear the kachunk, and then I go, okay, and well, where is it? And about that time, you've come to ready. You come into it. It it's smooth, which looks fast. And yep. As long as you're confident enough to not start double checking and and overthinking it, you'll break right. a lot of hunters clays targets. They're set up to be instinctively shot. Right. Yeah. They average, you know, twenty two to thirty five yards typically. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing. There's nothing so technical about it. They they do really simulate birds and uh, plausible scenarios. They... I never ever calculate lead when I'm upland bird hunting, except for in in one situation what's that one <laughs> when somebody yells bird and i look up and there's one you know sailing right mm -hmm. yep that's the only time i you know where i see a bird coming from a distance uh, you know a buddy flushes one off a hillside and i'm down on the creek or whatever you want a situation and you know that's the only time even pheasant hunting that's the only time all the times pheasant hunting birds off my dog's nose i'm ne i never calculate lead I, I i couldn't tell you what i did i don't calculate i rarely calculate lead on a sporting clays course mm -hmm. you just let your natural athletic ability take over mm -hmm. yeah as long as and and if you think you're in front of it enough, just hit the trigger. You'll you'll know right away if you are. That's if you if you're thinking you're in front of it, you're you're already you've already missed. Yeah. At least yeah. if I'm on wild birds. Yeah, I don't think as much on wilds at all. In in flushing situations, you know, not in you know, not pass shooting or you know. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're not calculating some lead on docks, you're never going to kill one <laughs> unless they're coming straight at you feet down. But even then, you better be putting putting your barrel at their feet. Yep. Yep. I've I found that even on the hunter's clays, I I always still do, and it's the way I learned skeet, the butt beak bang method. And as soon right. as I get to the, you got to get up to the bang, and about the time you get to the bang part, people either look and see or pull the trigger. Right. And and the people that just pull that trigger, they know they passed in front of it. They they break a lot of targets, and they can't really sometimes tell you why. Right. But, uh, they were confident enough that I should be there. Hit the trigger. You know, and it it really does work. I feel like when I don't see the birds, when I pull the trigger anymore. Mm. Covering but, it, covering it with the barrel, essentially, or. Yeah, I I, I couldn't tell you. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I mean, gun fit yeah. and proper eyewear are vital and color, right? My mm -hmm. brother, my brother is an extremely good grouse hunter, extremely deadly shot. And he wears different color shades than I do. You know, I have different colors for different times of the year. People laugh at me when they, you know, they see me wearing eye black and pictures and stuff. It genuinely helps allow me to wear the lightest lens I can wear. And I'm light sensitive, right? So you're hunting a November day that's 50 degrees and not a cloud in the sky. I'm wearing pretty dark, copperish, copperish colored lenses. Hmm. 
if you, I couldn't get away with that in September to save my life. Yep. My brother wears extremely light yellow. Yep. I I'd have a headache. <laughs> I'd have a headache so bad at the end of the day I couldn't see straight. Yep, I default to yellow a lot. And that's what works for your eyes. For yeah. my eyes, I I end up in the and even for my fishing glasses, you know, mm-hmm. I I uh, grays don't work for me. I got to be in the browns and the coppers. And so for me, I wear light purple early in the year. I go to more of a a, a little bit darker high def specs. You'd kind of call it somewhere between a, a purple and a red. Kind of, mo- that's my favorite color for when you know the leaves are starting to come or starting to. And then on bright days, I wear a dark lens. Mm-hmm. And to and to reiterate this for the the new people, these aren't necessary. But at a certain point, no. you'll realize though that you have a brown bird on a brown background. And when you're trying to pick out those details, when you get to the point where, yeah, you want a, a nice set of glasses that can give you a small advantage, you can you can gain that advantage in your glasses. Um, Correct. As well as, too, say you're in thick cover, there's nothing like knowing that there's something between your eyes and the branches. Yeah, everything else. I mean, geez, <laughs> Pete. Yep. <laughs> There's, there, there is something about knowing you can walk into something and certain parts of you aren't going to get either torn up or slapped. And whether right. it comes down to the, the, a longer-sleeved, durable shirt, your glasses, a certain kind of hat you like to wear, whatever it might be, um, gloves, you know, right. any of those things that make you feel a little more confident stepping into that cover, they all, they all help a little. They're not necessary to be a beginner. Um, right. But they do, they do present an advantage. And, and it's just like learning cover. It's all trial and error, right? What mm-hmm. do you, what, you know, go try it. I mean, I don't pull, if I shoot it, I'm not a, I have matured to the point where if I pull the trigger, I expect that grouse to fall out of the sky to a fault sometimes where a bird goes, I kind of start to mount and I say no. And then I go, oh, I probably should have shot that one. You know, but that takes a lot of flushes and a lot of time. I can tell you that I can tell you what color what color phase they are eighty percent of the time when I shoot them mm-hmm. before the dog ever brings it back, and that's just seeing a lot of flushes. Yep. And that's you know, and that's a and having your, yeah, and having your equipment dialed in. Yep. Yep. That's if you focused on enough clay targets where you can see those rims on the right. on the target. You'll you'll look that bird in the eye. You'll see its. T- don't look at its tail. Look at its eye. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah. There's, there is that as well as too up here. We're getting some spots where sharp tail habitat overlays a little bit with rough grouse, depending on right. the time of season. You need to make sure it's a grouse too, and mm-hmm. not a prairie variety. And well, they make such a different noise, but uh, you know, yeah. I mean. Yep. I, some reason i've never struggled with that even you know pheasant hunting but yeah um, I've, I've heard them before i haven't been in that situation where i thought it would be a grouse and it turns out to be a sharpie but, well the uh, sharpies are so slow <laughs> <laughs> compared to a pheasant or a hunt or anything else i mean yeah. you know that you can you can you can go is that a hen no 
No, sharp tail. All right, shoot it. You know, I mean, you know. <laughs> I don't get that long in the woods part, but I do get that long if I'm out. There's a right. few spots to go look for sharp tails just for the fun of it. And, yeah, they they give you plenty of time. Yeah. Yep. Um, moving on here, I know we've we've touched a little bit on habitat. This is going to kind of come back to that as far as how you approach a cover. Um and this is kind of an open-ended interpretation for you to kind of go with. When do I death march through the cover, and when do I head to the truck? So Well, it, dep- it depends on the year, right? I mean, in good years, if we're in a spot for 10, 12, 15 minutes, and we haven't moved a bird, we're turning around. I'm not that turning around and walking out in our boot tracks. But we're doing it. If, it, if, there's, if it's an okay year or whatever, sometimes you got to just, I'll walk them, right, and persevere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so when do you bail and when do you not bail? It depends on the stage of your career and what kind of season we're having, you know, and, and how confident you are there should be birds in there. I mean, certain times of the year they're all clumped up. I, I mean, September, geez, oh, Pete, I mean, you could walk, if you don't walk the right 80-yard swat you might miss the brood that's in there i mean then the older i get the less and less i like hunting september but <laughs> the uh, it, it all depends I, I mean and then it depends on where you're at too you know in the lower peninsula the average cuts 18 acres well i can cover that in 40 minutes so i might as well cover it mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or at least cover the prime prime of it you go into a hundred acre cut in northern Minnesota or Wisconsin or the UP, you know, and you turn around twelve minutes in because you haven't moved a bird. Well, you might have made a huge mistake. So it's all real dependent on your knowledge of the cover, the pattern the birds are using right then and there. But sometimes you get into a new spot, and you know, I'll just look at Rick and go, "Something doesn't feel right here. We're wasting our time. Let's go." Mm-hmm. And we'll walk out. So it, it, it just depends. I, I don't think that's a great answer, but it's all so dependent. <laughs> right. I've I've kind of taken that advice a little bit because I think I listened to you earlier about it. And uh, between the 20-minute rule, like, okay, we should have we put up a bird by now. Or right. we, we march to the back down the edge line, and if that doesn't work, you point the GPS at the truck and you go straight line all the way back, so you're not in your right. own boot tracks anymore. But either, either show, let the, you know, let the dog have his head. Show me something new, or let's get back to the car. And, right. Uh, and that's worked out good, especially in a newer cover. You know, you know right away in a way. You know, unless it's, right. unless it's 200 acres. Yeah, if you're looking across this, going, okay, this might take four different explorations to even cover it. Right. Yep. Now, I will tell you, you know, when Rick and I used to go to the national hunt in, in Minnesota and you get assigned to a 10-mile by 10-mile area and it's not full of, you know, there's two two prime 40 or 80-acre cuts there and we've burned those up, all of a sudden, you know, we're death marching through whatever stem density we can find knowing that, you know, but we're, we're, we were there trying to win, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know. We, we might be going for an hour walk in hopes of moving two birds that are, for whatever reason, in this awful cover that if we were on our own time, we'd never be hunting. <clears throat> yep. And uh, 
and kind of going along with that, though, you guys cover ground at maybe a faster rate than a lot of other people do. Yeah, I've been told that. <laughs> I think everyone I know that has hunted with you that mentioned it said that you walked them right into the ground, and it didn't take long. But uh, it well, it's part Kellen of the mathematics. Kellen Crow came, and I, I don't know any other way to do it. I, I'm a pretty high-energy guy, and, you know, it's just, you know, Grouse hunting is one of of four things I do where I'm completely in the moment, and that's really important to me. And I said this in the Project Upland film, and they edited out the one part, but, you know, I'm either, uh, you know, my phone is in the truck. I'm not a guy that carries a phone in the woods. I've got GPS, but I'm 100% in the moment, and it's rare, and, and Mm -hmm. you know, so grouse hunting, coaching hockey, playing men's beer league and i'll let you guess the fourth one <laughs> that, you know i'm completely in the moment right yep. i yep. mean i go steelhead fishing i like to think i'm completely in the moment but you know my mind's still thinking about work or practice plan or whatever i gotta do or wherever I, i'm not a hundred percent engaged like i am when i'm grouse hunting yeah i think we probably average I don't know, maybe three miles an hour, you know, give or take. That's pretty good through cover. I think it also so, it also may play into this as well. Like how many how many hunters out there trust their dog's nose to cover the distance it really can cover, right? We want to see our dog go at the speed we think their nose can handle. And I'm learning with with one of my dogs is that nose is sixty yards at times, like. He'll stop and get birdie and then pause and say, nope, that's not it, and discern something that could have been over the next rise and go back to hunt in the direction he was going. And right. if I start trusting him, I can cover a heck of a lot of ground. And he's already done it. I don't have to let him, I don't have to make him cover it twice because I'm walking slow. You know, in a way that may, that may play into your dog and, and your hand together. Right. Well, you can take the path of least resistance, too, which increases mm-hmm. your speed. Yeah. If that's your thing, there's no, I mean, the greatest thing about grouse hunting is the guy that shoots five a year enjoys it as much as the guy that shoots 50. Yep. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's we, we all get what we want out of it. I'm not, you know, I'm not here to run anybody down. I mean, we brought Kellen Crow. Kellen Crow came up and hunted, I don't know, three days with us, two and a half days with us or something last year. And he, uh, you know, I think he was exhausted at the end of it. I, I mean, you know, it's just, I'm not saying I'm not exhausted. I mean, when we take our one week a year sojourn, we, you know, we straight up get after it. I mean, I'm excited to take boots off at the end of the day. Yep. And, you know, so, but those are 20,000 step days. Yeah. Yeah, that's. Or, or, or more. I mean, you know, but that's what I'm there to do. I'm there to, it's my one week to really go and really hunt. Yep. And there's those magical days where you got 10 by noon and there's a glass of brown water early. But that's. Yeah, I can count. I can count on a couple fingers the number of times Rick and I have gotten that done. I can. I can tell you. I've never. I've never gotten five. <laughs> I've, I've, it'll. Ha- it'll happen. 
I, you know, if, I honestly, I honestly stopped. I, once I got two or one some days, you know, one feels like a real victory some days. This is hard. Yeah. And, you know, once I've gotten two, my motivation wanes greatly. I'm, I'm happy if I go up to camp and every, say every other day even I get one, and maybe that's me selling myself short. You know, one grouse, a couple of woodcock, I feel great. And after that, you know, hey, I got another one. That's even better. I've maybe right. I've, I've progressed in some areas quicker than others, but uh, any day you can kill two wild birds on public land, yeah, is an incredibly great day. Never mm-hmm. lose sight of it. There's days I hunt legit six hours, boots on the ground, and I kill two, and, and it's great. Yep, it, it's great. It's a great day, and I. I find that I'm coming into my experience level as my dog ages, and so I'm still on that fairly large curve up because he's learning and I'm learning, so we get this combination of growth. And, yeah, it's it's incredible. And at, at the same time, though, I can I can appreciate the one. You know, we I don't talk too much about it here, about trophy hunting, but the idea that if you stopped at one, you'd be happy. Yeah, I, right. I have a great trophy. I got a wild, rough grouse out of Michigan. Yep, I'm good. I can go back. I can have a drink and a sandwich and and just remember the one. Now, I I still try to go out a little bit more, but, you know, that's that perspective that comes. You know, my uh, when I started dating my vegetarian wife, um, it was our first fall dating, and I had my first bird dog, and she was in medical school at Michigan State. And I was primarily a southern Michigan pheasant hunter, and I had access to some pretty good ground. And uh, I'll never forget, I went out one more. I went to visit her. I drove to a farm that I had access to hunt. And this was coming off the 94-97 CRP bill. And I killed a big, beautiful rooster, and I couldn't be happier, and I put it in the refrigerator, and she wasn't appreciative of that. <laughs> She's like, well, it might have a disease. I'm like, well, it's a wild animal. If it had a disease, it wouldn't, been, it wouldn't have been alive for me to kill it. But, um, you know, and then I'm like, uh, she's like, well, are you coming down next weekend to see me? And I'm like, no, I'm going down to Cousin Dan's. We're going to hunt. She's like, well, you, you, you got yours. I'm like, oh, honey, this isn't deer. Like, you don't just get one pheasant tag. <laughs> right. But, I, I mean, coming from a non-hunting family and everything, she yeah. had no idea. Yep. Right? I mean, that that's what she, well, you got yours. Well, you know, I don't own and train and feed this dog to get one. So, yeah. Nope. What else you got, Joe? I got two left. All right, let's roll. I got a, I got an error on my screen. I have no idea what that is. Hopefully this is, no. keeps going. That, I've never seen that part before. Anyway, um, we'll go with Jeff's question here first. That's the biggest threat to bird populations and steps to prevent loss of population. That one's, I think we've, we've preached about this one, I think, over and over again. Um, it. Threats to bird population or always habitat? I, 
I think there's two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think habitat is the number one threat to our bird population far and away. It's not close. And then I'm going to say something that's not going to be popular to some people. Perfect. I like those. I think climate change is the second biggest threat to our wild bird population. So Michigan had pretty darn good wild pheasant hunting from about 1996 to 2006 off historically high CRP bills and very low commodity prices. The 94 and 97 CRP bills were huge. And back then, I think we were shooting around 130,000 wild roosters a year. Mm -hmm. And you can say, well, that's nothing compared to the Western states. But if you had access to CRP south of, you know, M20 or 55 or what at 57, excuse me, 57, you have pretty good pheasant hunting. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, I was fortunate. So what happened? Well, all that CRP expired in the, during the great recession and commodities prices skyrocketed in the advent of ethanol. We now shoot 20 or 26,000 wild roosters a year in Michigan. Yep. And that is, that is what, what happened? Well, that, that's just the economy, right? Wild birds are a product of the economy. And I don't know what you're seeing or what you're feeling are, but I do believe there is climate change. I'm not convinced it's full-blown global warming, but it feels like to me that spring starts later and summer lasts longer. And that we are getting more and more of our rain now in late May and June than when we typically used to get it in March and April. And being a steelhead fisherman, I'm very attuned to this. And big, heavy snow winters are vital to our grouse population. And I almost feel like even in my short 25 years of grouse hunting, taking it seriously, I've seen the cycle go away. It almost feels like the cycle's gone away. So I don't, I'm not a believer in West Nile virus. I've seen an explosion in ticks that we never used to worry about to the point where I have my first black lab. It'll be my last black lab because of ticks. Hmm. It feels like winter comes in in December and it lasts darn, darn near till May 1st. I mean, it's snowing right now. <laughs> it is down here, too. And we don't get just these beautiful 55-degree April days. We don't get the March rains we used to get. And then it seems to rain a lot from May 15th to June 15th. Well, what happens? Hmm. Now, I believe the cycle might be changing more because of cutting practices the last 25 years where we've gone away from massive, huge clear cuts Mm -hmm. 
you know, everywhere I go, the habit, I've said this a lot of places, the habitat feels a little too young, a little too old right now, but it feels like there's a ton of really young stuff. But the average size cot feels like it's 18 to 25 acres, where it used to be 80 acres. So is that impacting our cycle in the, in the, in the proper habitat management, especially on state lands in the state of Michigan, county lands in the state of Minnesota, that we're leveling, we're getting a, a better overall healthy forest, but we don't have these giant cuts. Is somehow that impacting our grouse cycle? I don't know, but it feels like weather. Feels like weather right now dictates our numbers. Right, that that later rain and that later cold is brood time, and that's yes, that's not that's not real good. And I, I'm thinking in one of two ways. Yeah, the ticks were never a problem when I was a kid, and that well, they weren't a problem ten years ago. Yeah, but now, I'm there's there's also the the backwards problem of it, especially when you bring up southern Michigan pheasants. People so scared of climate change that they're going to throw everything into the ethanol wagon killed our pheasants. It, even a couple of degrees here and there difference in temperature, these are birds that withstand North Dakota winters. They withstand right. Michigan summers. You know, the rough grouse's range reaches all the way to northern Georgia and all the way into Saskatchewan. This is a bird that can last temperatures. And it, oh, there, there's more grouse in the yeah. province of Ontario than in Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin combined. But but the, the, the fear, the fear of climate change took our pheasants from 100 and some odd thousand harvested and hunters taking the day off of work to the point where, what, 20,000 a year might actually be an overestimation of our harvest? Right. And, and people being scared and doing scared decisions which are stupid decisions, which are poor decisions, put us in a spot where we don't have the habitat. Well, the pheasants, I mean, the population is growing. Mm-hmm. It, it is. And so but you would think the demand for toilet paper and wood would be increasing. I would hope. And it, but but it, it apparently isn't with the mills, paper mills going out and everything. But, you know. It's, yeah. So that's that's understandable, you know. The, the 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 biggest threat is lack of connected habitat. I had a farm in Montcalm County that we used to shoot our we used to shoot our four man limit and see a hundred pheasants on three hundred acres of WRP. We used to we used to do it in twenty twenty five minutes in December some years, mm-hmm. and that habitat is still there, and there's hardly any birds there anymore to the point where I don't want to hunt them. <clears throat> well, what happened? The CRP went out on all the acreage around it. So yeah. did they inbreed themselves out? Do they not have, you know, I don't know. But the best wild bird hunting is when you have connected habitat. Right. Those those 300-acre islands just become that. And uh, that's a concern that's been brought up here before with our southern Michigan SGAs for grouse. Yeah. Um, you're an island, and if you can't connect, you can't bring them back, um, which made kind of, you know, I, I don't care if it makes people mad or not. Uh, you can't wait five more years to make a plan to go do something. You don't have five you, years left. You can't do it 10 acres at a time. No, you're going to, or unless you want to do a lot of 10 acres. That's um, what I mean, right. 
yeah. But that's be. not 10 acres at a time. Right. It'd be 100 acres and 10-acre <laughs> chunks. You know, you, you got to put some work in. But uh, that's that was the second to last. The last one here is, uh, I mean, how do you help? The, I mean, the, the, the second half of that other question um, is, you know, is kind of where I'm at with some of it. You know, this is the only advocate you have for whichever bird species pick one. Um, you gotta, you gotta do something. You gotta speak up. Um, that's kind of everything you gotta do. I think the biggest genuine impact I've had is attending forest compartment reviews and just telling your state for wildlife biologists and for plan. I'm not my. I'm a bellhop, so I trust our fisheries and forestry folks, but that doesn't mean they don't need to hear it and hear our, our opinion, um, and that we don't need massive management, especially on our federal forests, sometimes on our private lands, because connected habitat benefits everybody. Mm-hmm. And the less and less habitat we have, the more, you might say, you know, everybody's like, well, hunting pressure is way, way up, but license sales don't necessarily indicate that. I mean, that is quantitative, right? Mm -hmm. The sense that hunting pressure is up is, is, is not, you know, I guess it could be quantitative, but license sales don't jive with all of us complaining about hunting pressure or people, you know, being here and there and couldn't find a spot. But what's happened is our federal forests in the state of Michigan have been so sorely neglected that you've removed 2 million acres. Let's just say there was 100,000 acres of prime habitat on it, and you've concentrated it on our state forests, which are managed and managed, and then the line where grouse live keeps moving north and north and north. Is that climate change? Is that habitat? I don't know. I mean, I'd love to re-manage all the state game areas in southern Michigan and see what happens, right? Even if we got to do trap and transfers and close them for three years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I do think hunting pressure's up, but I think we have less and less habitat. Yeah, we're Pennsylvania being... wants Pennsylvania wants to blame West Nile. West Nile's been here for a long, long, long time. But I looked it up. 1999, 14% of Pennsylvania's forests were early successional. In yeah. 2018, it was 7%. Yep. So, oh, I've got this great hillside with 80 acres of cover and there's no birds in it anymore because that's the only 80 acres for five miles. Yep. <laughs> and and I've had Julie Milati on here from the DNR. She's one of the, the senior lab technician on the West Nile study. None of the indications so far show that this is a huge, huge worry. You know, it's, it's well, prevalent. It's, it's in there. If we'd had West Nile, if we'd done these studies in 2011, would have they been any different? That's what I question. I'm not a scientist. She was talking about, and I'm going to have her back on because the third sample study has not come back yet. Conclusive results, of, you know, not all the data is back in for their third and final year, but the first two years showed that yeah, it's here, and it doesn't seem to be that big a deal. 
And when another state turns around and says, this is our problem, and then, yeah, like you look at the numbers and say, well, less than 10% of your forest is actually livable for an entire host of species, that's, that's a really nice shadow to hide behind, but it doesn't really work. Here's what does work. Mm-hmm. Intensive, early successional forests. Yep. Stem density. Winters where we have a lot of deep, fluffy snow. Really nice, mild, dry weather from May 25th to July 1st. And then some good, timely rains after that. Mm-hmm. Here's what doesn't work. No early successional forests. Lots, lots of crusty, short, thin snow all wear. And rain and cold from May 25th to June 15th or June 20th. Or a drought in July and August. Yeah. Yeah, environmental factors and, and where you live is is really the whole thing. And it the thing is though, if you have really good habitat, you can weather some of that other stuff. Or we wouldn't have any birds to repopulate. <laughs> right. We I, <laughs> uh, I right? 